Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to West Coast Blockbuster Virtual Reality. What can I help you find? Well, I um, certainly want um, that as I, I need to get some um, <clears throat> some science things like uh, space exploration or whatever. You want porn. No. Whatever gave you that idea. I mean, for, for medical research, possibly. I, I'm mainly interested in uh, science as I said, and architecture. But I also, I mean, uh, virtual reality could also help me grow my moral and spiritual functions. I don't understand. It's just that I've been bad. A very bad girl who needs punishment. I I sort of need to be a, a special victim. You want to rent the virtual reality where Mariska Hargitay spanks you. Yes, no, no. I mean, if in your judgment you think I need it. You know what frustrates me? This technology has a nearly unlimited potential to set people free. And what do people rent over and over? Mariska Hargitay, spanking them. Mariska, anyway, I'm in a hurry. I just bet you are. You know it's a good idea to clean the goggles occasionally, right? Yeah, sure, whatever. Just put it in the bag. How about if I throw in one where you tour an offshore wind turbine facility in Denmark? It's on the house. Yeah, no. I need to run home as fast as I can, and the extra weight's going to slow me down. Sicko. On our show today, virtual reality can do so much more than the first thing we think about. And now, he likes the one where he gets to be Howard the Duck, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I mean, and live in Howard the Duck's reality, too. That's what I always wanted to do, and now it's possible. Uh, maybe it's not possible. I, w- I will freely confess that I don't really understand. Or, I mean, I know what virtual reality is, but... I don't have a real grasp of it. And that's why we have excellent guests on. That's why we do this, right? We do this because we don't know. Uh, so we're going to be talking about virtual reality today, and it's cousin augmented reality. Uh, to, we have all kinds of guests lined up for you, but uh, guiding us through the, this labyrinth will be David Ewalt, a journalist and contributor to Forbes magazine. He's an expert on uh, these kinds of games and technology, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, Defying Reality, the Inside Story of the Virtual Reality Revolution. Also in studio with us, a familiar presence and voice to you, uh, Patrick Scahill, WNPR's science reporter and writer for The Beaker. A little bit later in this segment, he will be uh, using, while you listen, uh, and possibly throwing up on the air, uh, (laughs) virtual reality. I'm not doing this because I actually get nauseous during regular reality. Uh, I actually will sometimes get queasy. Uh, just experiencing reality as it currently is constituted. So putting on goggles would be a bad idea. Uh, All right. So uh, I'm going to begin with you, David. Um, In some ways, uh, we have to talk to a whole bunch of different generations and technology proficiencies all at once. So some people may be just the tiniest bit unsure what we mean when we say virtual reality. Do you have a good working thumbnail description of this? Well, in the broadest sense, virtual reality is a technology that hides you away from the real world and injects you into a fantasy world or an alternate world. Um, This is usually achieved through putting goggles on your head that have a screen in them, headphones, 
and they show you a 3D in-depth picture of somewhere else. And that can really be anything. It can be you know, a live camera from across the world. It can be a cartoon universe. It can be a video game. It could be something real or something impossible. So doing the world, the, the work that we used to depend on drugs and psychosis to do, but you have more choices. You can actually control the hallucination that you're living in. And then there's a, a, a close cousin, augmented reality. Now, I confess that I don't have a good grasp of how, what that is or how, how is that different. So broadly, augmented is the same kind of technology. We're you know, creating fantasies around you and making them come to life. But augmented reality is usually achieved through transparent glasses. So imagine I'm wearing a pair of glasses. I can still see the normal world around me, but these glasses can insert a computer screen and make it look like it's floating in midair. Or in an advanced version of it, it can insert other people or other animals, or it can just make, make anything fake appear with you in the real world, sort of on top of the, the regular environment. Um, now, this the idea of this has been around, I don't know, maybe as long as I've been alive and maybe longer. I mean, if you think about it, is it Brave New World where they have the, they have the, the feelies, this idea that you can go to the movies and kind of experience what the characters are experiencing on stage? This notion that you could have uh, a designed, immersive experience as part of your media experience is really, really old. And, and, and certainly even the idea, even the, even the realization of that dream is maybe a little bit more older than people think about it. I mean, how how far back do we go to get the first instances of something that at least appears to be a reasonable precursor of what we're talking about now? Well, if you want to be really nerdy about it, which I always do, oh yeah, uh, the, the oldest, farthest you could go back would be like, you know, 20,000 years ago, something like uh, Lascaux Caves, these places where cavemen went in and drew pictures on the walls of animals. And the idea there was we're creating an immersive environment where you go into this weird place and it looks like there's deer and oxen all around you. More recently, it's what you're talking about is stories like like uh, like with the Feelies and Ray Bradbury had a seminal story and a lot of, of science fiction stories in the 1950s up through the 1980s is where we start to see a more modern version of you know, is an actual electronic headset. This is a display device that we put on. L. Frank Baum wrote a story where there's sort of augmented reality glasses in it. So it's a lot of sort of 20th century fantasy and science fiction authors really honed in on this idea. So and 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 then it was being used to entertain us through things like Sensorama and all kinds of other uh, technological uh, innovations. But while that was happening, while we were being entertained either by by fantasy writers describing this or people experimenting with the actual technology of entertainment, there was another group of people getting really interested in this. Uh, and it's so often the case with anything that's uh, technologically exciting, it's the military, right? They want to figure out uh, how they can use how can, how they can simulate certain kinds of combat conditions. So what do they do with it? So a lot of this VR tech grew out of uh, research in the 1960s, where what they were trying to do was create smart heads-up displays and interactive controls for fighter pilots. So the idea being, if I'm in a plane going Mach 3, you know, it's very hard for me to look around, look down, look at my instruments, and they were trying to create it. So everything I need to know in my cockpit could just be sort of floating in front of my eyes. I put my airspeed sort of floating in midair. I put radar tracking in the same place. So I don't have to look down and miss something that shoots past me when I'm looking at my instruments. Um, so a lot of those military labs created these these early headsets with uh, digital displays for that purpose to just give pilots more information and, and help them interact with their plane. 
So that's that's maybe in the 1950s, but also, as I alluded to, in the 1950s, there are people who are trying to be pioneers in the world of entertainment. Maybe you should just quickly uh, mention Morton Hellig and his uh, concept of sensorama. What was that? So sensorama grew out of the 3D movie fad, which was you know already a thing in the 1950s. And and Halick going into the 60s said, well, like, 3D movies are great, but wouldn't it be even better if we had a 3D movie that you could smell and that you could feel and that you could hear in stereo? It wasn't just like a screen off in the distance. So he built these devices that sort of look like we would recognize them as as video game arcade cabinets that were big in the 1980s, but you kind of sit in it and there's a screen that wraps in front of your face and there's speakers and you would go on an adventure. You know, one of them, for instance, was riding on a motorcycle and it was a first person recording of a motorcycle going down a highway and you seeing this film would feel like you were on the bike and you would feel the wind go past you and you would hear the sounds and it was an attempt to create this really not just 3D but a completely immersive simulation for entertainment purposes. So now all of this is is proceeding along and there starts to be, as we become more digital, more uh, interesting experimentation with this and a lot more talk. You know, certainly heading into the late 1980s, people were talking about virtual reality as a kind of immediate future for everybody. It's taken a bit longer than that to get to where we are now. But where we are now is that in just a few moments, Patrick Scahill is going to put some put a headset on and, and have a VR experience right here in public radio. And God knows we have no money for things like that. In fact, if we'd known about the Lascaux cave paintings, we probably would have done that more within our budget. But what, what happened? How did things come together so that the average person can walk into Best Buy or whatever and, you know, get a headset and, and, and also get something that will allow him or her to actually have this experience? Well, as you identified, like this is a technology that popped up several times before. There was a boom in VR in the 80s that then crashed and another one in the 90s that then crashed. And the reason why it never really worked till now was there was two reasons, really. One was the sort of technology was not up to snuff. We couldn't really make VR that was convincing enough. Um, it's a real problem when you're putting somebody in an artificial world. Their brain knows, oh, OK, this doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. And that's what makes people sick. So it took a long time for us to get the computers and the displays that would allow you to create a really sophisticated and convincing simulation that didn't make people ill. Uh, Another big part of it was just the advancement of microcomputers and in particular the explosion of smartphones. Uh, Some of these systems in the 80s were, you know, $40,000, $50,000, $60,000, but now you've got a high-resolution screen in your pocket, and that screen is so fast and has such a powerful computer behind it that that can be used to power one of these virtual reality headsets in a, in a, in a very convincing way. Right. And I think we also have to give a nod to wirelessness, too. I mean, a lot of this stuff, and I think there is still stuff where you're attached to your computer by some big clunky cable. But in general, Patrick doesn't want to be doing that. He wants to be fighting dinosaurs you know, while he's driving <laughs> at high speed on, speeds on the highway. So I would I would assume wirelessness is a key to all this. The idea of having a phone, a smartphone that has you know a higher computer power than anybody had really imagined, and is has wireless. Is that fair to say, Dave? 
yeah, wireless is also very important. Um, you know, a lot of these early systems, you had so many wires that you really couldn't move around within them, or the headset was connected to the ceiling and, you know, threatened to choke you if you moved around too much. So being able to receive wireless data from the internet, but also just, you know, your headset being able to communicate with your computer, your hand controller being able to communicate with your controller, it's a real big deal. You're not wound up in spaghetti every time you're trying to use one of these things. And Patrick, that was a joke. Don't fight dinosaurs in your car while you're driving. Okay. All right. Don't All right. do that. Uh, all right. In just a second, we're going to have uh, uh, Patrick test pilot this. But uh, before we do that, this very quickly, Dave, I mean, one of the other things that's happened is, you know, some big players have gotten in, into the game. In fact, Patrick, what kind of um, headset are you going to be using there? So this is something that Ray Hardman brought in that I think he picked up for $10 at, at, a, <laughs> at a Walgreens drugstore. Uh, this is so a public I'm, radio version of. Right. Uh, and, and actually, the iPhone that we're putting in here, the screen is uh, slightly cracked. But I think we'll still get the, the full experience. I don't know the exact brand's no, name on this, though. It's, <laughs> it's Acme. It looks fairly He generic. actually bought this from Wiley Coyote. This is Wiley Coyote's uh, VR machine. But, okay, so I didn't realize we were going to be that uh, down market, Davey Welt. But I, I, in general, we're talking uh, uh, a couple of big – well, two and possibly three big consumer players in this market. Tell us about that. Well, VR and AR is – uh, tech companies are really looking at this as the next big thing, and nobody wants to miss the boat on on this. Really, every major tech company is doing something in AR right now, but when it comes to the headsets, to the hardware that you can use at your home, uh, the big ones right now are a company called Oculus, which is owned by Facebook. They have one of the major high-end headsets. Uh, there is uh, the phone and technology company HTC in partnership with a game company uh, called Valve. They made another headset called the Vive, which is another one of the, the high-end ones. And then there's a lot of these phones that use your – these headsets that use your phone as the screen. So that's when you get to companies like Samsung has a bunch that use their phones. Google just came out with several phones and a brand-new headset that use their Google phones. And then there's a lot of sort of follow-on companies like the one that seems that you guys found, you know, the ones that you can get at the drugstore that'll just take whatever phone you can put into it. Um, there's also, and this is something you've covered a lot, something called Magic Leap. We don't, Magic Leap is so secret, even for bringing it up on the air, we could be killed. Uh, but this is something like nobody really knows exactly what Magic Leap is, right? Except they have a lot of money. So Magic Leap is a company doing AR, or as they like to call it, mixed reality. They're developing a headset that would very much be just like put on your pair of glasses and it'll make a TV screen appear floating in the center of your living room. Um, they were very quiet and secret for years. They raised uh, $4.5 billion in investment money from companies like Google, from major Silicon Valley venture capital funds like Andreessen Horowitz. Like they got real blue chip investors to give them an ungodly amount of money. Um, very few people have tried their technology, seen it in person. Uh, I tried it for a cover story of Forbes a couple months ago, and it's it's really impressive. Hmm. All right. So well, we're going to demo it now. We actually have uh, a slightly off-brand uh, VR thing. This is Schmuckulous, actually. Um, it's a knockoff of Oculus. And so so what, what, now what are you going to experience right now? So this is called the Jurassic Dinosaurs VR 360 experience. And okay. I think uh, your producer, Josh, uh, just found this on YouTube. Right. Does so, it come with any warnings or anything? Uh, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, we, we've actually been getting... No, actually, that's not how warnings work. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> warnings that's come before the thing. <laughs> we'll find out if it's it should have warnings. Is. Yeah, I maybe suppose. we'll find out whether it should have. All right. All All right. right. So, it's, so we have this phone. It's kind of in this big black box. I'm going to close the box. And uh, I have to put on this headset here, so I'm going to yeah. take my headphones off. Right. Yeah. 
And, and, and how are you going to do that without bumping into the mic? It's going to well, be Well, yeah, that could be another part that we have to deal Don't with Don't put here. more headphones on. That's not oh, actually, right. I think I need to. So I'm going to start <laughs> it up here, and I'm closing the box. I'm putting the headset on my head. And, you know, while he's doing this, Davey, well, I mean, one of the things that does happen to people, or at least it did, I, I'm sure they're trying to work the, the kinks out of this, but, I mean, you know, people put these things on and dinosaurs start jumping at them and they start, the people start thrashing around and maybe becoming less and less aware of their own environment, right? There are kind of risks just, you know, of being physically out of control. Any technology where you're literally covering up your eyes and ears, yeah, you probably want to do that in a safe place. You don't want to do that in traffic. Um, there's videos on the Internet if you look around of people putting on the headsets and getting startled by a bear or you know being attacked by somebody with a gun and running and tripping over their furniture. It can be very convincing. Yeah, I, it's going to be one of the more embarrassing emergency room visits. All right, are you seeing anything right now? Anything? So I'm, I don't even know if I'm near the microphone right now. Yeah, you're kind of near the microphone. Uh, but what I'm seeing is a bunch of dinosaurs that are walking around in this open field. And as I move, it's actually kind of cool. Uh, I can see everything around me in a 360 pattern. Now there's a big T-Rex that's looking directly at me. And there's an armored van, which appears to be what I arrived in. And I don't know why I'm not in that, but I'm standing outside <laughs> of it. And the dinosaur is now staring right at my face, and it's very Jurassic Park-like, actually. Yeah. This is pretty cool. And so you got out of the van to ask the Tyrannosaurus directions, I think. Yeah, sort of that's that's, right, the, that's right. the plot point that you missed. But nobody's like attack. And so does it – I don't know. Are you, so you really do feel somewhat caught up in this experience. It, well, actually, yes. So uh, I'm, I'm – okay, the dinosaur actually just killed something right in front of me and is now offering meat to me. Yeah. I don't know what it no, wants you me take to do the meat, Take the meat. Take the meat. Yeah, well, it gets very upset if you don't take the meat, all right? <laughs> That's just bad manners. And now it's – yep, it's, it wants me to take the meat. Take the meat. Take, I, what's wrong with I'm you? I'm taking the, the meat. Take the meat. Oh, yeah. actually, well, he just grabbed it back. All right, okay. And he is eating it in front of me now. This must be like a dominance display on the T-Rex's oh, yeah. part. yeah. Uh, show yeah. you who's boss. I'm looking around. There's another dinosaur that has arrived. Uh, are brontosauruses technically a thing anymore? I don't. Yes, think they, they are. I think they got. They, no, back. they they went back. Okay. They came back. I think they so, are back. So they're there's okay. a brontosaurus, and actually, as I tilt my head back, I can see it's it's way above me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, and I'm right underneath it, and. Yeah, I really want to get back in this car. I feel very All unsafe. Right. Well, before you do that, area. just look at the Tyrannosaurus and say, "You want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? <laughs> come just at me, T-Rex. Come yeah, at that's me." Right. Yeah, you get in his face a little bit. All right. Well, this—I don't know whether that was riveting radio or not, but it was—it's oh, yeah, was, I mean, it been something. exciting to watch you do this anyway. I'm do you take feel? It off now, do you though, feel? Do you feel queasy at all? I do. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make you queasy. All right. So you know, I got queasy just watching you do um, uh, virtual reality. All right. So that's you know, it couldn't be more exciting—a radio demonstration uh, <laughs> of virtual reality. But you know, uh, Dave, well, do we have a sense of? I mean, one thing we do know, every article that I read about this, you know, they always quote somebody from some consultancy on venture capital or something like that. And some huge number is thrown out. In fact, every time I read a new article, it's like, you know, by 2020, this will be a $400 billion business. And I'm not saying that those are unreasonable numbers, but do we kind of have a sense of how things are going right now or what penetration is like for this technology? It's hard to say right now just because the technology is so very new. Mm. When we look at the two high-end headsets, we look at, at the Vive and at, at the Oculus Rift, they came out in March mm. 2016. So they've barely been on the market. hasn't even been a year yet. Um, what we can do is look at the amount of investment that's gone into it. It's something like $3 billion that were invested into into VR and AR companies last year. Um, 
The products are obviously getting sold at a high rate. Uh, PlayStation, Sony had came out with their VR headset just before Christmas, and it's been impossible to get. It's selling for two, three times its retail price on secondary markets like eBay. So there's clearly a ton of demand for it, but the market's still so new, we don't know exactly how many people have bought the headsets and are using them yet. It's still very, very early. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here. Let Patrick go throw up, uh, and we'll come back. We're going to talk more about virtual reality and how it's going to uh, transform, maybe, commerce. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk more about virtual reality. Uh, we're going to talk about it with David Ewalt, journalist who's a frequent contributor to Forbes magazine, and he's an expert on games and technology and, um, and author of an upcoming book about a virtual reality uh, that's called Defying Reality, the Inside Story of the Virtual Reality Revolution. Um, also joining us, and I believe he's at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas right now, Ben Rubin. Uh, he's a, a senior reporter for CNET uh, on technology and e-commerce. So, um, David, before we go to Ben, um, one thing that we already know Ben is going to tell us uh, about the Consumer Electronics Show, where everything and anything is being rolled out and uh, dangled before the eyes of journalists, is that he's going to see a lot of VR because VR is just sort of a killer app right now, right? I mean, it's a master app. It's the thing that everybody wants to have some component of in whatever it is that they're doing. And and my sense is that, you know, maybe in some cases they're doing virtual reality before they really understand how best to use it, what it is, where it's going to work, when it's going to seem cheesy. I mean, is the rush to embrace VR maybe running a little bit ahead of the real understanding of what it's good at and what it's not good at? I think that's probably true. There are people that are rushing in and, and maybe putting out shoddy products or you know, investing in VR for their company before they really need it. But it comes from that people recognize that this is a really potentially transformative technology, that VR and AR in particular can really change the workplace, can change the way we interact with technology throughout our lives. So you know, a lot of companies see that and say, this is going to be big. We don't want to miss the boat. So maybe right now, you know, there's people saying, oh, you know, let's do a, you know, we are a refrigeration company and let's figure out how that we can use VR in our business. You know, maybe right now they really don't need to be doing that. But just because people have a sense that this is going to be something very important. Yeah, I know. I read today uh, about uh, the Atkins Nutrition Company uh, at the CES. They've got the thing called sugar goggles where you experience what it's like to have sugar inside your body or to be sugar inside your body. And you kind of wonder whether that's really more about their enthusiasm for, you know, that technology and not being left behind than it is about the best use of that technology. But the person best qualified to comment on that is the guy who's there right now, Ben Rubin, uh, who's been writing about this for CNET. Uh, And first of all, Ben, uh, you've been, I assume, uh, out there to some big virtual reality demos. What have you seen? How are they using uh, that right now at C- uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show? Yeah, the most significant uh, demo that I've seen so far was the Intel press conference, usually at uh, other CESs that um, we go to and go to these Intel press conferences. They do a little bit of everything. They talk about drones. They talk about um, all sorts of different technologies, smart home inter- integrations, different things like that. 
this year, they were heavily focused. The whole thing was about VR. So it was pretty clear that Intel was really trying to put a stake in the ground to say, you know, when it comes to all this data processing that is required with VR, we want you to think about us. We want you to think about our computing chips. And it was interesting that we came in, everybody that was seated there was a room for 250 people, and everybody had a high-powered laptop in front of them and an Oculus Rift VR headset. And uh, every couple of minutes, we got transported to a new location, whether it was rural Vietnam or um, in Moab, Utah, where we were flying uh, around in this desert landscape. We got moved over to a live NCAA game. I think it was Butler versus Villanova. Uh, so it was, it was interesting to get all these different flavors of what, where VR could take you and what VR could potentially do. Yeah, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the, the commercial aspect of this or the way in which VR enhances commerce. So, Ben, I'm going to stay with you for just a second on this. I mean, obviously, one great thing that you can do is if if you're in the process of buying online, something large or something that would be difficult to ship or may, maybe expensive to ship or a big commitment, I mean, presumably one of the things they'll be able to do, maybe they're already doing it, is use virtual reality to kind of, I don't know, show you how it looks in your living room or, I mean, give you some more, I mean, one of the problems with any kind of online shopping is you can't really touch, feel, and and experience the thing as a 3D object. You're just reading about it and looking at it. VR is uh, the way to complete that missing piece. How much of that kind of thing are they doing? I haven't seen that much in the show. I was at the um, NRF big show. This is, That was a uh, retail conference last year, and there were a handful of different uh, VR concepts. These were really just proof-of-concept ideas of how you might be able to shop using VR. It was pretty obvious that a lot of this was very, very early days, very experimental. But there was this one marketer called uh, Sapient Nitro that I thought it was really interesting what they did. They had this entire uh, showroom set up that you you put on your VR goggles, and um, they had little diamonds around in the showroom. And if you fixed your gaze for long enough at a particular diamond, uh, some information on that uh, particular piece of furniture would come up And then if you press the side, you know, granted, this is just um, uh, a demo, but if you press the side, it would say this is added to your shopping cart. Now, this was this was a showroom, but you could conceivably think of what this might look like if uh, they created a 3D rendering in VR of your own apartment building or your own house Mm -hmm. or they did it in AR and you just put on some goggles and tried to toggle what this different size couch might look like in this particular room or what the colors might look like. One other interesting idea might be lighting. You know, you could play around with different types of, you know, chandeliers, different lighting. Do I need more lighting in the space? Do I need less? What paint color might look really good? So there are a lot of, there's a lot of potential there, but I, I would caution to say that we're still uh, very early in, in doing this. And a lot of it is really just experimental at this point. They're all just kind of feeling their way out, trying to find out, how could we potentially do commerce in this space? Um, you know, uh, David, you heard Ben mention uh, going to a basketball game in this uh, Intel virtual reality tour. One thing that's already happening, obviously, is st- you know, places like StubHub, StubHub are, are allowing 
or, or creating virtual reality previews. So at least before you buy that seat to see a major sporting event or the Rolling Stones or whatever, uh, you can kind of virtually sit in that seat. But uh, David, I know one thing that you've uh, thought about a little bit is whether or not that actually becomes the ticket at some point that, you know, maybe you can't go to the Olympics, maybe you can't go uh, or afford to go to some other live event, but you could get a VR ticket where you were kind of there. People in the entertainment industry, particularly those who do live events, whether that's a sporting event or whether that's a concert, are incredibly excited about VR because right now they're limited by the number of seats that they can put into an arena. So the New York Knicks or the Patriots or whoever else, you know, they cap out at some point. They can try to charge more for seats and they frequently do. But with a VR setup, what they can do is put a camera on the field or on the sidelines, or put lots of different cameras, and you in your home can put the headset on and be there in the stadium. You can watch the game live, or you can watch a concert live. And this is something that's already happening. There are already a couple companies that are doing this and that are making live sporting events and live concerts available right now. So if you have an Oculus Rift or one of these other high-end headsets, you can log on to things like the Olympics. We're simulcasted. Some of the events were simulcasted in VR. So it's like you're standing there on the field and you can look around and watch the part of the event that you want to watch. Um, and presumably, I mean, another thing that you can do, yeah, is get closer than you otherwise would. Uh, I assume if I would, you know, if this were available, say, for the presidential inauguration, uh, David, could I just stand right next to Donald Trump while he's uh, being sworn in? I mean, not in real life, but virtually stand right where he's standing. Absolutely. Um, I uh, There is a company called Jaunt VR that did a Paul McCartney concert, and they put their VR cameras in several different positions, but one of them was right next to his piano. So when you watch that VR concert, it's like you're standing on stage with 50,000 fans screaming at you, and you can watch Paul's fingers on the keyboard of the piano. I've also seen live basketball games streamed where the camera is literally attached to the backboard. I mean, you can't get closer to the action than that. It really puts you up close to to everything you want to see. So, Ben, you mentioned augmented reality. And, you know, the more that you guys talk, the more it feels to me like virtual reality, as cool as it is, does require some kind of designed environment, does require the wearing, at least right now, of something, you know, a little on the clunky and attention uh, calling uh, in order to do it. Whereas augmented reality, I mean, if it's sort of basically the equivalent of a pair of glasses that you're wearing and allows you, as you suggested, to look at your actual real home environment and maybe add a potential sofa to it. I mean, somehow or other, uh, Ben, augmented reality seems like it could be 90% of life, whereas virtual reality feels like it could only be more like 10% of life. Right. That's that's precisely right. And a lot of major tech players really view augmented reality as the much bigger play. It almost seems to me that virtual reality is uh, the entree that they're using to test their way into getting to augmented reality. And to me, it does seem a little creepy or a little unexpected that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here having a conversation with you and potentially a bunch of uh, tweets pop up in my glasses and just to confuse me or something or get me off of what it is that I'm talking about. But, it, you know, there's a possibility that there are just these additional distractions, you know, even even though we look at our smartphones all the time. But there is a possibility that augmented reality does become a much bigger part of our lives. Um, going into the commerce piece, 
just just as a general concept, you could be walking into a, a shopping mall or you could walk into a supermarket. Maybe it would be something annoying like advertising would pop up mm-hmm. depending on which store you're in front of. But if you walk into a particular store, maybe they don't even have any tags. You can just look at certain items and the information about it pops up. Uh, so uh, it, it, it does seem that augmented reality is is – going to be something that a lot of tech players see is this is this is going to be the really big thing that could potentially change uh, a lot of people's lives and be a much more integrated part in uh, society than maybe virtual reality which is more of um you know a side piece that you have to be a little bit more um uh isolated sometimes when you're using it and and at the moment uh, ben does is AR kind of a one-way thing? In other words, I walk into Best Buy and, yeah, maybe it tells me what's on sale right on, right on the vision field of my glasses. Or I can see this. I can see the price of things. I can see all kinds of stuff. Maybe I can even see exhortations to me to uh, do things. But right. but but does it does it know that do the things know that it's me? In other words, we all remember that moment in Minor- Minority Report where you know where advertisements are talking to Tom Cruise. They know who it is. So we're not, I assume, at the point Ben where you walk into Best Buy and 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 the refrigerator says, "Hey Ben, you were saying the other day you needed a new refrigerator." Right. Um, it could end up going that way, but. You know, any time there are new types of technology, there are always privacy concerns. And I think that, broadly speaking, these tech firms, these major tech companies want to get people interested and excited about these ideas. They want people to start adopting it. And you don't want to creep people out. You don't want to make people feel uncomfortable and that their privacy is being infringed upon. I think uh, smartphone makers have done a reasonably good job of trying to convince people that it's okay that you have a GPS tracker on you at all times. Also, Amazon and Google have done a good job of telling you it's okay to have an open mic in your house that you can talk to with uh, Amazon's Alexa or the Google Assistant. You can ping it with questions. So it's another one of those things with AR. If you are going to invite it into your world, invite it into your life for that much of your time and that much of uh, your waking hours – you really have to thread the needle and make sure that uh, people want it. It's a value add for them, and they don't feel uncomfortable using it. They don't feel like they're being watched too much. So uh, that's that's at least what, what my expectation would be, and I, I think they still need to figure out how exactly to do that. All right, let's start creeping people out. So, David, um, this actually won't creep people out that much, but, David, one of the things that happened over the last 20 years is the dating went digital. I mean, the idea of a personal ad came out of the pages of the New York Review of Books and went on to Match.com and OkCupid, and you could uh, find out more about people before you met them. And then this whole other set of mores had to grow up around that. You meet for coffee the first time. You have a sniper positioned on the roof in case it's a crazy person, whatever the more is. Uh, But now, one of the things, obviously, that this kind of technology can do is allow you to meet virtually. So, David, that's not happening yet, is it? Um, On a small scale, there are some virtual realities, some social-oriented virtual realities now where people can log in and sort of have little avatars that they move around and talk to each other. But they're still very video gamey, uh, usually moving your person around with your computer mouse. It's what, what people are really talking about with the social environments of VR is where, like, there's an avatar that looks like me. There's a computer-generated character that looks like me, and I see a computer-generated character that looks like you. And there's a camera that matches my movements. So if I raise my hand and wave in my living room, you 
you see my computer character waving my hand and raising my hand. That's not happening yet. What we have right now is basically uh, immersive video games, immersive sort of like online 3D environments where people can chat. Um, we also need to quickly – there's a word, Ben, that you're no doubt hearing a lot uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show, and that is the adjective, adjective haptic. Explain what haptic means. Haptic means sort of taking this – out of just your field of vision uh, and, and audio and, and maybe making some of this experience much more kind of total body? Yeah, haptic in the simplest term is just touch sensations. Uh, there are a lot of Android phones. Android phones have used uh, haptic engines in their phones uh, uh, for quite some time, and uh, the iPhone has added haptics in more of its most recent mo- models. It basically, when you touch the screen, it, it goes and gives you a feedback response. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, different ways to use this. There, there are uh, a lot of different experimentations to make them work better, so you can feel different things depending on um, what it is that you're doing. But uh, the idea is, is that whether you add uh, hand controls or I actually heard about at, at one of the events that I was at, there were, there were haptic shoes or haptic sneakers that you would wear while you actually have your VR headset on to, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, give you the sensation that you're walking around or, or, or something is responding to you in that VR environment. But, um, yeah, something that I've definitely seen a lot at the show is what are some additional enablements? What are some additional add-ons that you do now that you have the VR headset on? How are we going to get people more immersed in the space? How are we going to get people's bodies more engaged to get them to feel like they're really there. And uh, haptics, uh, as you mentioned, is, is one of those tools that they are using. Yeah. And so uh, it has some wonderful applications. I talked before we kind of came on the air with a full show about what's been done with paraplegics, where, first of all, they use virtual reality to wake up some of the parts of the brain that actually communicate the notion of, yes, we want you to move your arm or your leg right now, uh, and then uh, work with haptic te- technology to create exoskeletons so these people can actually begin to move around. It's just an incredible thing. But, you know, David, when Ben says, get your body are fully involved. Well, now we do have to talk about porn. I mean, you know, porn is always one of the first frontiers of any new com- communication technology. I don't know how long it took from the buffaloes on the Lascaux Cave before you started doing, you know, making pictures of people getting busy. But, you know, it usually doesn't take too long. I assume virtual porn is a potential growth industry. Virtual porn is already a growth industry. I've been talking to a couple of different companies that are making virtual 360-degree video porn, and it's already a big thing. Their sales and subscriber numbers have exploded over the last 12 months. It seems to be for people who buy a VR headset, one of the very first things they do is go to one of these sites and and download VR porn. And that's not surprising. If you look at other uh, media technologies, uh, pornography was what drove the success of VHS, of videotapes. It was what drove the success of DVDs. Uh, the reason why we have streaming video on the Internet right now is because people wanted to use that to get access to porn. So this is just another example of it's really, you know, the the bleeding edge of technology. People want to try that. They want that sort of prurient experience. And uh, it's a good thing not only because maybe you like the porn, but also because it's great testing ground. There's so many people who are downloading that and using the technologies that it gives people a chance to check, to to improve the technology and to check out the hardware and see what's needed online. And then that's when other companies start coming in afterwards just saying, okay, we've seen how this can be done. 
That's the first time I've ever heard porn users described as people who may be driving uh, technology forward in a way that will be a massive benefit to the rest of the world. But, yeah, you can be the guy delivering the pizza to the three nymphomaniacs. Not that I've ever seen that movie. All right, we're going to take a, a break. Thanks so much to Ben Rubin. Ben Rubin, who's out there uh, risking his life uh, covering all of these new things uh, for CNET uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, we'll take a break. Uh, say goodbye and thank you to Ben. We'll be back with more of David. We're going to talk about the medical aspect of all this, both the dangers and the benefits. What's really happening? What's the deal? It don't matter what you think you see, dog. None of this is really real. It ain't important what you want to believe, y'all. What's really happening? What's the deal? Hey, Mr. Virtual Base Jumper, it's me. The purple glowing otter in the sky right next to you. Now pay attention because this is very complicated. If you're listening to this at 1 in the afternoon, you need to know that at 8 p.m. we're doing a whole new episode of The Nose. If you're listening at 8 p.m. on Friday, this is the show we originally did at 1 p.m. on Thursday. If you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or TuneIn or WNPR.org slash Colin, forget I said anything. Meanwhile, this show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Pants appeared in the intro, and our interns are Rusty and Crispy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Gates. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, all that is because we decided we wanted to do the nose at night. We usually replay the nose at 8 p.m. on Friday nights, but we wanted to do the nose tonight live for the people who listen at night, so they're not always getting the replay. And that has thrown us into total chaos. Uh, it doesn't take much to throw us into total chaos, as you've probably already divined. All right, so uh, we are uh, talking uh, about virtual reality. Uh, David Ewalt has been our Virgil guiding us through this underworld. He's a journalist, frequent contributor to Forbes magazine, an expert on game, games and technology, and author of an upcoming book about virtual reality. Um, also joining us now is uh, Doug Magyari. He's CEO of IMI, uh, Incorporated, a virtual reality research and design company. Uh, welcome to the conversation, Doug, and I hope I pronounced everything correctly. Uh, yes, you did. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So, um, obviously, there's a lot of amazing stuff that can be done uh, medically to to benefit the world through virtual reality. And already, I think they use it to simulate operating theaters, to give uh, uh, surgeons who are training a chance to experience something when there aren't enough patients or cadavers or whatever to work on. Uh, you can actually do things like that. I talked about what's been done to help uh, paraplegics activate the parts of their brains that aren't sending the signals uh, anymore. But there's also... You know, this is a very immersive technology. And so what do we know about the kind of stress that it puts on people uh, to to have something as unanticipated uh, as this immersive experience? Well, there's a lot going on with it. And uh, depending on the, the nature of how the content is actually created, uh, it has a tremendous uh, effect on the brain, mm -hmm. and which can be both good and bad. And there's a lot of research going on and a lot of stuff that is not really understood very well. Uh, this is clearly uh, the most powerful communication device ever developed. Uh, if you can imagine it taking over your eyes and your ears, uh, those are certainly the two most uh, primary senses that we use to uh, do virtually everything. And uh, so it's a, it's a really, really important subject and needs to be investigated a lot from where we are today. 
Um, and and I, it's one of these things pro- where probably the availability of the technology is cruising way ahead of the full understanding of what goes on. And, uh, and you know, you, what you ultimately probably want for people who work in virtual reality is, you know, I don't know, you hate to have any kind of code that inhibits uh, free expression, but you probably do want some guidelines about what you can have somebody do safely and what might really mess them up pretty bad. Does anything like that exist? Is anybody trying to spell out the ethics yet? Uh, it does not exist at this point in time. I mean, there's a lot of knowns, but they're not necessarily being incorporated into like the standards for hardware manufacturers. For example, uh, there's a certain limit to uh, how much energy uh, is put into the eye comfortably. And, and that varies uh, a lot depending on the age of the eye and the health of the eye. And um, there's a lot going on in this hardware world that that's kind of not being paid attention to, certainly not properly. Uh, if you uh, look at the televisions that are designed uh, in our homes or your cell phones, they, they have a certain brightness to them designed to be viewed, uh, televisions designed to be viewed from 12 to 15 feet and uh, reach up what's called 150 nits, a certain amount of intensity. Your phone is designed to be viewed at 12 to 18 inches away, uh, and uh, now these devices are being placed two inches from your eyes with magnifying lenses on them, and uh, uh, that's being deemed as okay, and I would uh, seriously question that. Um, one of the other questions, uh, you know, Dave Ewald, David Ewald, at the beginning of this conversation, in order to define virtual reality, said it basically, you know, was a technology that allowed you to shut down this existing reality and enter another reality, uh, a, a fantasy world, a designed fantasy place. So, um, Doug, what happens to, do we know anything about what happens to the brain when you do that? In other words, there's sort of a lot of things going on right now. I'm sitting here right now. I'm not wearing any goggles. I'm just experiencing reality. My brain is doing all kinds of things that I don't, I'm not even aware of, neurons that are just firing off to kind of anchor me and make me aware of my surroundings. I'm, I'm assuming, I know there's some studies with rats, right? Like what happens when you start taking those stimuli away, shutting out yeah, the world? Sure, sure. So the, um, the thing that uh, needs to be paid attention to, and again, it depends on the, the use that you're trying to accomplish. So if it's a very simple function with a VR device, then these kinds of things might not matter so much. But if you're really trying to uh, impart a message or even accidentally in a game take people into an area or a space where it, maybe it's frightening, uh, you have to keep in mind that because you've captured somebody's eyes and ears, you have really control over that individual. The conscious brain, the subconscious brain, and the autonomic brain are all simultaneously in play. And when you're in a virtual environment, the, you know, the, the eyes, the data going into the virtual cortex, the brain only knows what it's being fed. So its ability to distinguish the difference between reality and a, a virtual environment we do, we do not have that ability. We did not evolve that way. And so uh, the most interesting and slightly scary study that's been conducted, which is a neuroscientist out of UCLA, uh, Mayank Mehta, uh, did a, he's a neuroscientist that utilizes rats uh, because they're able to do accelerated studies. And when rats were put into a virtual environment, uh, this was not a research effort that was expecting this uh, outcome that came from this, but what they found 
was uh, literally permanent neurological damage uh, in the rat brains uh, when they were in a, a VR environment. And what they're attributing that to is the, the confusion uh, of mixed, mixed messages and the brain not knowing what to do with that. And so it, uh, there's a lot going on, and there's certainly a lot that we should be heeding based on early test results from what we're seeing. David Ewell, I'm going to let you have the last word. We're uh, nearly out of time. But obviously, this technology, it's like a lot of things. The benefits uh, and the risks are, are both very high. I mean, listening to all of you guys talk, I, I find myself thinking about um, how, how they could be used in a pretty horrific way for enhanced interrogation, right? If you really wanted to torture somebody without necessarily physically bruising them, you, you could do a lot of things to them with virtual reality and, and maybe uh, permanently scar them doing that. On the other hand, we know that, just you know, that, that in fact, virtual reality is really good at helping people control or be distracted from actual physical pain. People who, for whom pain, you know, is a necessity because of a medical condition or a procedure have the ability to quell that pain a lot. So, so David Ewell, are you basically optimistic uh, about our virtual future? I'm basically optimistic. I think it comes down to whether you're optimistic or not about human nature. And the thing about virtual reality is this is such a, a transformative technology, and it interfaces with the brain in a way that no other media technology we've ever had before can, can do that. So if you think people are going to use this for, for negative purposes, they probably will. I mean, we need some standards about, like, you know, am I going to make a murder simulation simulator? Or, you know, am I going to, you know, simulate things that cause people uh, uh, trauma? But we also see that, you know, this is a technology that can cure trauma. If I'm a burn victim, you can put me into a virtual reality of an ice cave. And people have done this test, and it makes the pain go away. It makes it feel like the burn isn't there anymore. And as long as we keep an eye on the potential benefit of this technology and what it can do for people, I think it's going to be a really great thing and a, and a transformative thing for human society. Well, thank you, David E. Walton. In the future, put on your virtual goggles and go through a virtual bookstore and look for Defying Reality, the inside story of the virtual reality revolution by David E. Walton. Thank thanks to everybody else, all the other guests, Josh Nalea for producing this show. Hey, wait a minute. There really is a dinosaur here. It was in virtual reality. There's a, there's a velociraptor in the studio. Patrick, help! Today I would like to provide the American people with an update on the White House transition and our policy plan for the first 100 days. What? This our virtual reality is, is so crazy. Donald Trump as president is a little bit of a stretch, though. I'm going to call it a day. are being brought in. And many it's will still on. Part of our Dear God.